The book of Romans. 38 weeks that we've been working our way through Paul's letter to these Christians. And you know, in reference to the 16th chapter that we come to today, the final chapter in Romans, John Chrysostom, who was one of the early church fathers who lived during the last half of the 4th century, he said this, I think that many even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men hasten over this part of the letter as if it were superfluous. You know, when we're reading or studying Scripture, we do tend to rush past the greetings, to skim over the genealogies at best. Another theologian, one of the great teachers of the past, went even further. He said that Romans 16 is one of the most instructive chapters of the New Testament. Think Now why would he say that? Because basically it's, it's just Paul's list of greetings. Well, the reason he gave was because of how this chapter encourages personal relationships, relationships of love in the church. So Chrysostom and Brunner were both right. Even in the genealogies of both the Old and the New Testaments, even in Paul's lists of those who, to whom he sends or receives greetings, there are truths for us to ponder and learn. And the very first verse of chapter 16 has something that's very important that we really need to take account of. Paul begins this chapter by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Um, let me just point out a few things. The word for servant that Paul uses is not the word to serve. If it were, he would have used the feminine form of the word, diakonia. He didn't. He used the masculine form of the word, diakonon. He is calling Phoebe not a servant of the church at Centria. He is calling her a deacon of the church at Centria. Now some of you will have a footnote in your Bibles. And you'll go to that footnote and down at the bottom it'll say, DKS. Well, that'd be fine too if it were the feminine form. Uh, but it's not. He uses a masculine form of the word. Even though he refers to her as our sister and welcome her, whatever she may need. He knows that Phoebe's a, a woman. But he uses this word in his masculine form because he is denoting that she had an important official position with that church. 
And that's why he tells them. You treat her as if you're working with one of the saints. You provide her with whatever she needs because then he comes back and says she has been a patron and that word, prostitos, a patron of many of myself as well, according to the most highly recognized word study dictionaries for the Greek language, that word, patron, meant not only a leader, a ruler, or even a director, it meant somebody who, with the Latin, Plutarch used it for a patron who was a defender of those who were in lower positions. So why do you spend so much time over these two verses? Because we've spent a lot of years treating women wrongly in the church. Many of you have been to Bible study and we went through Paul's letters. You already saw how we looked at his emphasis in 1 Timothy as being that he didn't want them to appear like the temple prostitutes. But he still recognized their importance and their role. And so as we dig into this 16th chapter, looking for examples, I want us to see that Romans 16 provides us with a memorial of sorts, a spiritual hall of fame. And so verses 3 to 16. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus. I got the hiccups. I must be growing. (laughs) Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stickies. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosis. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Astenocritus, Philegon, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. A list of greetings. 26 individuals, 24 of whom he names, 
And in most cases, he sends a special personal greeting with each one. Several of the people are connected to Ephesus, a church Paul had ministered to for three years. Now, if we reflect on the names and the circumstances of the people that Paul greets, I think you have to be impressed by way of two things. First, unity of the church. And secondly, the diversity of the church to which they belonged. So first of all, in terms of the unit, the diversity of the church. The Roman Christians were diverse in race, rank, and gender. As for race, there were both Jews and Gentiles. And this is confirmed by the fact that, that Paul mentions his own kinsman, and he was a Jew, and also Aquila and Priscilla are specifically spoken of in Acts as being Jewish. And there are other Gentiles as well. In terms of social status, uh, there's, there is some uncertainty. But inscriptions from the first century indicate that Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia, those were all common names found in inscriptions for slaves. <clears throat> And some were freed people. Others had links of distinction. For example, com- uh, most commentators consider it likely that Aristobulus, that's mentioned in verse 10, was in fact the grandson of Herod the Great and friend of the Emperor Claudius. And Narcissus was none other than the well-known, rich, and powerful freedman who once was a slave but gained his freedom and exercised great freedom under the reign of Claudius the Empire. More distinguished, though in a different sort of way, Rufus. Uh, my, uh, My grandfather's name, middle name, was Rufus. And my grandmother hated that so much that when she named my uncle after my grandfather, instead of naming him John Rufus Latimer, she named him John R. Latimer and used a different middle name. (laughs) So she still maintained the form. But Rufus, very well, I will say probably was the son of Simon of Cyrene. You know who Simon of Cyrene was? The one who carried the cross. And the reason I say that is Mark, the Gospel of Mark was written to Roman Christians. And Mark mentions, when he's talking about Simon of Cyrene, mentions the fact that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Probably indicating that they would have been well known to the Roman community. But the most interesting and the most instructive part of the church diversity in Rome was that of gender. Nine out of the 26 persons greeted are women. Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Tryphena and Tryphosa, and Rufus's mother, Julia, and Nereus' sister. 
And Paul evidently thinks highly of every one of those because, in fact, he singles out four of them, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persia, Persis, as having worked hard. And the verb he uses is, is one of strong exertion. Two names call for special mention. Prisca. That happens to be the name for Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla from the book of Acts. And did you notice, if not, go back and look. Her name comes before her husband's name. And I think, well, what's the big deal there? In that century, it was a very big deal. That was an honor-shame society. Many would have seen that as an element of shame on the husband's part, that his wife was named first. But the fact is, is that Luke also names her first when he talks about how Apollos had come into the picture and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and Luke says they instructed him on the way of the Lord more clearly. Paul appears to recognize and not to criticize her leadership. He's singling her out probably for spiritual reasons. And I think this needs to be said and heard. The prominent place occupied by women in Paul's entourage shows that he was not at all the male chauvinist of popular criticism. And in terms of the question of ministry of women, among the women Paul greets, four, he says, were hard laborers, co-workers with him, fellow workers. Junia was a well-known missionary. And Phoebe, more than likely, a deacon of the church that Paul gave the authority to carry the letter of Romans and to explain it to them if they had any questions. Now, I've been in the book of Romans for half of a year. Spent too many pages writing about nine or ten verses. And I'm not sure that I feel real comfortable still with the task of explaining the whole letter to everybody. There have been many times over the last 37, 38 Sundays that I've said, I think this is the case, but it's open for discussion. Phoebe was given the authority to inform them as to what they should be thinking. Secondly, I think the list shows the unity of the church. Not only in terms of rank, race, and sex, but also in the fact that Paul has already said there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ. Moreover, the list of greetings contains several indications of this fundamental unity of the people of God. Four times Paul describes his friends as being in Christ. Verse 3, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. 
Five times he mentions all of them being in the Lord together. Verse 8, 11, twice in verse 12, and again in verse 13. Twice he refers to those people as his sisters and brothers. And not only that, he has no qualms at all about calling them his beloved. And he also mentions two experiences which strengthen Christian unity, namely working together and suffering together. I should go over there and get up on my soapbox. That's how strongly I feel about what I'm about to share. The toleration of ethnic division in the Roman house churches had to be done. It was incompatible to think that in any way they could separate themselves from what he had already said in chapters 14 and 15. Prejudicial behavior and prejudicial statements are sinful. Period. End of sentence. And not only should they not be a part of our lifestyle, we shouldn't tolerate it from others. I don't know how Rich and Cindy do. I know how I do. When I hear somebody that I know speaking negatively about blacks, I speak up and say, I'm sorry to hear you say that. I thought better of you than that. My son-in-law is black. And I love you. And I'm sorry that you can talk about him and his people that way. I kind of like the way John Stott has said it. We must declare that a homogenous church, and look around this morning, we do look pretty lily white, don't we? We must declare that a homogenous church is a defective church. And he goes on to say that we must, as both individuals and as a church, work humbly and perseveringly toward unity in the midst of diversity. But notice how Paul abruptly transitions to a cause for shame. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught to avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The transition is not only abrupt, but the tone of his admonition is so harsh that many find it inconsistent with the rest of his letter. But I don't. And especially with his gentle handling of the weak. But again, I don't. Because one of the things that hurts Christianity more than anything else is division in the church. 
Why would anybody want to be a part of a church that is divided against one another, fighting with one another? I think it's readily understandable that his mind should move from the Roman church's unity in diversity to the menace of those who were threatening divisions. Moreover, his conciliatory attitude toward the weak reflected in his respect for sensitive consciences I think needs to be seen with his severity to the false teachers who aroused by their deliberate mischief in disrupting the fellowship were in fact contradicting what the gospel says. And so Paul begins his exhortation with the same words which he used to introduce an earlier one. I urge you brothers... And he issues a threefold appeal to vigilance, to separation from sin and its ugly effects, and to discernment. Watch out for, be on your guard against those who cause divisions. I might just give you a little, a little how-to. Somebody comes up and they say, did you hear about so-and-so? And they start into a bunch of negative stuff. It's real easy. Watch it. Now, I don't want to hear about that. If you got a problem with them, go to them. That's what the Bible says. If they're sinning against you, go to them. If they're sinning against somebody else, it's none of your business. More damage has been done to the cause of Christianity by flappy, fluent mouths than anything else. That's why Paul gets strong on this issue. He calls it a scandala. Does that sound like a word we know? That's the Greek word. The English word is actually just obstacle. But the word had that meaning. Something so bizarre that it created scandals, stumbling blocks. Chapter 9. So Paul does call for separation from those who are departing from the apostolic faith. Keep away from them, he writes. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wish we had to wear a placard that said Christian or non-Christians. Because there have been times that if we had those placards, I would have walked up to somebody and I said, would you look at this verse with me? And showed them what God's Word said and then said, would you please give me that sign that says Christian? Because you shouldn't be wearing it. Not that we're perfect. But when we deliberately sin, go read the book of Leviticus. We studied it. 
Guess how many times it comes up as a form of sacrifice for somebody who deliberately sins? None. None. All of the provisions for sin and sacrifice are those who do it unintentionally. The ones who sin intentionally, guess what? They're taken outside of town. And you know what they have? They have a little game of pitch and catch. Except they don't do a very good job of catching because they're stoned to death. We think we can sin intentionally and then just go to God and say, well, I'm sorry. We can go to God and repent and confess, but we better not take that lightly either. So, where does that take us? Verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. What a title to wear. I love that placard. The obedient one. <laughs> My dad would have loved for me to wear a placard like that more often, I'm sure. <laughs> for your obedience is known to all. So that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, by the way, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sassapater, my kinsmen. And then notice the next line. We don't need the first manuscript that Paul wrote. You know why? He didn't write it. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. He had an amanuensis. Now, it wasn't a secretary taking shorthand, getting every single word the exact way he said it. An amanuensis had liberty to use words as he's hearing what Paul was saying, but it's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why when I when I come up on those who say, well, you know, this doesn't sound like Paul. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was Tertius's choice of word there. But it's still inspired. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Some of your translations don't have verse 24. They skip from 23 to 25. Nothing wrong with it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It wasn't in the original early manuscripts, but there's nothing wrong with it. Blessings and doxologies. Now, what do we get from this? 
Well, I think it's important for us to remember that whenever we have to get real strong like he had just in the last two verses, that it's time to come back and revisit the good. And Gaius, whose hospitality, well, those are, that was Paul's host when he was in Corinth. And so he begins this eloquent conclusion to his letter. And it takes up his central themes. He summarizes them. He relates them one to another. Here's what it sounds like. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. He ends Romans the way he began Romans. Don't think for a minute Romans is just about being saved by grace through faith and you don't have to do anything. He begins by speaking of the obedience of the faith and ends with coming back to the obedience of the faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's my challenge. We need to be hearers of that doxology. Wouldn't be a bad verse to snip out of there, copy, put it on something, keep it in front of you all the time? Yeah. God's able to strengthen me. And, and that, that word mystery, no, don't, get, don't get set aside by the 21st century use of the word. It's not a puzzle to be solved. They understood the word mystery to mean something that didn't used to be known, but has now been revealed. Paul said we didn't used to know that God had a plan. It was kind of veiled in the Old Testament, but then the prophets started making it clear, and now it has been revealed that Jesus Christ is the representative who covers what Israel couldn't do and therefore covers our sins by giving His all. I've been studying the parables in depth, and I love the way. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. The importance of being hearers and doers, not just hearers. You come here on Sunday morning and you're just a hearer, that's okay. But when you leave here, don't just be one who was a hearer. Be a doer. Here's how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. I can just see him. Talking to the disciples around him. Hey, let's get this going and maybe it'll become popular. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. Come on, disciples, sing it with me. The rains came down and the floods came up. 
The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. But, and Jesus at this point kind of probably points over to the wadi area. He says, next verse is just like the first, only it's a little different. Foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. Same building, same rains, but different foundation. So when the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. What happened to the house on that sand? And the house on the sand went. And Jesus said, Don't be like the fool who built his house on the sand. Be like the wise man who heard the word and put it into practice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time that we've had this morning to open a portion of Your Word. We thank You for the book of Romans that we have studied and spent time in. Help us to be doers of the Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.